0: The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. Hello everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Got a treat for you today, we've got more Indian history, uh, history from the subcontinent. We've got Priya Atwal talking about the Sikh Empire, the rise of the remarkable Sikh Empire. In the 18th century, ever since the death of the mighty Aurangzeb, the Mughal Emperor, uh, India was fragmenting, just as the British were establishing their enclaves and, and moving inland for places... Uh, in Maharashtra and Bengal uh, so too was a new empire being carved out of northwest India the Sikh Empire Priya Atwell has been on the podcast before she's a legend she is a historian and writer uh, based in the UK she has just written a wonderful new book on the Sikh Empire and she's here to talk all about it if you want to hear Priya's last interview on this podcast if you want to hear all our back catalogue of podcasts please go to History Hit TV it's like, a, it's like a history channel really and you can use the code POD1 when you check out POD1 you get a month for free in one month it's £1.00 euro dollar then you'll be a subscriber you'll be supporting everything we're doing here at history hit this week we're reuniting a man with the aircraft of his father his father flew in the second world war his father was killed during the second world war the aircraft survives we've discovered it exists we are reuniting a gentleman with his father's aircraft he has not seen it he does not know it still exists and 75 years on we're going to reunite them that's all thanks to you that's all thanks to you subscribers for supporting everything we're doing, so thank you again. In the meantime, everyone, here's Priya Atwal. Enjoy, Priya. Great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks for having me back, Dan. We always hear about the fading Mughal Empire in relation to the arrival of the British, but actually, there was there was more. Th- there was a lot going, more going on on the old subcontinent. What? What? what who else was taking advantage? of of the lessening power of, of Delhi?
0: Well, I think you could say that every man and his wife and dog was taking advantage across across India at this stage as the Mughal Imperium was starting to crumble. And I mean, I'm talking about the 18th century at this point. And it's interesting because in, in a lot of British colonial historiography, you, you tend to see this period described as one of just utter chaos Um, And that the British come in to, and the East India Company comes in to impose some sort of order on all of this, right, and restore the glory of the Mughals. But of course, there's actually so much going on from Tipu Sultan uh, to Maharaja Ranjit Singh and uh, the Begums of Bhopal and other than others. um, There are so many new players that enter the region and, and establish their own kingdoms and courts and powerful armies at this time.
1: Where are we talking about? What In northern and to northern northwest India, aren't we, In and Afghanistan? What, so orientate ourselves there. And also, what, what had been their relationship, the Sikh Empire, with um, the Mughal power at its peak?
0: So, well, the Sikh Empire really emerges after the Mughals have lost control of the Punjab and northern India. Um, it's the Sikh missiles, the, the kind of warrior bands that emerge after the death or, or soon after the death of Guru Gobind Singh, the last Sikh guru, And they are the ones that really take on the remnants of Mughal power in the Punjab and crush it, as well as Afghan invasions that are coming from from Central Asia uh, to dominate the region of the Punjab, which is an incredibly fertile, lucrative part of northern India. And essentially the the Sikh kind of these these little tiny warrior bands that start off as almost, you know, running a kind of guerrilla warfare against the Mughal administration and also the Hindu princely states that are the small hill states that are in the Punjab hills. Um, they, they, The Sikhs take them on and they try to establish a much more egalitarian, religiously based society, essentially. Uh, but those those missiles, those warrior bands themselves over the course of the 18th century emerge as mini royal powers. They, they slowly, slowly transition away from being quite meritocratic and um, kind of hardy little war, warrior groups to slowly, slowly becoming more refined and royal in their culture with their leaders, their chiefs and that kind of thing. And then, essentially, you see these Sikh figures starting to adapt and adopt the um, the older Mughal ruling, ruling culture and the older Rajput ruling culture and essentially setting themselves up as mini kings. And from there, you see the young Ranjit Singh emerge who wants to combine all of the territories and powers of these former missiles and set up an empire.
1: And why do the Mughals lose control of Punjab? Is it because of... Sikh power and Afghan power is it a push or a pull
0: oh it's in a way it's many factors over the course of about a good century or so but it's yes it's it's the Sikhs it's the Afghans and also other local kind of more nomadic tribal warrior groups like the Rahilas and the Gujars. they and 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 I guess you could say the Maratha empire as well um all of these groups big and small there's they're, they're all pushing and pulling at the fabric of Mughal power and essentially it just rips apart it's the Afghans come in and just knock them out with massive sucker punches every every few years. And then the Sikhs are kind of chipping away <laughs> on the ground, if you see what I mean. And then when you add in the Maratha empire that sucks out the resources across the rest of northern India and takes control, the Mughals just aren't left with much to ground to stand on, essentially. But there's, there's, I must admit, their symbolic and their cultural power lives on. And that does continue to influence and um, what's, you know, Sikh conceptions of politics as well, you know, the, the Sikh gurus engage with this, they don't directly rubbish it or throw it away, they, they engage with it and they subvert it in their own political culture. So it's very much there.
1: Now, is Sikhism is a, is a religion, is it is it quite ethnically Punjabi? Was there, was there a, a, an ethnic dimension to this empire building? Or, or were they happy to make converts wherever they found them?
0: It's it's a bit of both, actually. Um, it's definitely, I mean, it grows out of, you know, the, the uh, Sikhism, the cradle of it is the Punjab. And you definitely see that the local culture influences the more sort of martial aspects of the faith as it develops, you know, against Mughal power into the sort of beginning of the 18th century um, with the, the creation of the Khalsa, the military sort of warrior, warrior brotherhood that the last Guru Gobind Singh sets up. Um, but at the same time, as you, as you kind of get into the politics of how this empire is built and the, the real importance of kinship networks to bring together different Sikh chiefs, Sardars as they were known, and kind of get them to encourage them to work as allies and um, as kind of military comrades in a way, uh, they rely on this idea of kinship uh, that's very prevalent within Punjabi and in Northern Indian culture, that you, you treat each other as brothers, you treat each other as, as equals, brothers in arms in a way, essentially. And, and that really shapes the culture that Ranjit Singh then builds upon to, to turn his missile into a dynasty and to then establish the, the kind of relational groups that help him rise to power um, as, as a new Maharaja.
1: And is there tension within Sikhism as it transitions from a, a kind of religious idea and, and religious practice into an imperial structure?
0: Well, it's interesting that it's not Sikhism that's transitioning in this sense. It's, it's how different interpretations of these, you know, of these royal figures or these newly emergent royal figures, how they interpret the legacy of what their faith and their history has left them to, to give them a new political mileage to, to claim royal power. And I mean, I think we're still, as Sikh historians in particular, are still trying to grapple with what what the political legacy of of the gurus were and and was you know there's a there's a debate that I touch upon in the book that the 18th century period should it really have should Sikhs have, have created some sort of republic would that have been a closer you know cut to the to the ideals of the gurus and and the very um, egalitarian radically egalitarian vision that they were setting up or was this sort of really enlightened type of monarchy actually the way to go right and and the idea of a really humble king who would lead um his or her servants to to greatness in a way and uh, moral greatness as well as you know prosperity within society um that would enable Sikhs to rule over a diverse population as well we have we can't forget that Sikhs were actually minority in the Punjab at this time that the Hindus and Muslims were in a much greater majority so what does that mean as well to establish Sikh rule over such a diverse population it's a complicated factor. They were definitely willing to, um, and encouraging more people to convert into the Sikh faith. But at the same time, it's not necessarily a proselytizing religion in a direct sense. It was just thought that, you know, the ethics of it would draw draw people in, the egalitarianism of it would draw people in. And it does, it drives people in in droves. But at the same time, um, I guess the politics and the philosophy of rulership we're still understanding what, what that would have looked like, and, and what's clear, when you look back at this period of history, is that Sikhs themselves were very much experimenting with, with all sorts of different ideas of, of political formations and how to make their society work. You know, Once they've got rid of Mughal rule and they're trying to set themselves up themselves, um, there's all sorts of ideas being thrown around, essentially.
1: Um, and so now let's get on to the chronology. Tell me about this this man, this individual who really establishes this imperial dynasty, well, this empire and his dynasty.
0: Maharaja Ranjit Singh is born in 1780 in Gujarbala, which is today in Pakistan. It was in the northwestern corner of the United Punjab at that time. And he's born as the sort of second or third generation of a, of a young chief of what's known as the Sukharjakiya Missal. So one of those warrior bands that we were talking about earlier and there were 12 of them, Sikh-led warrior bands at that time, uh, towards the end of the 18th century. And actually, Ranjit Singh's family missile was one of the smallest. But they were quite mighty, I have to say. Um, and because they were right on that northwestern fringe of Punjab, they were at the heart of fighting against the Afghans, dealing with those invading kind of Afghan Pathan uh, clans and troops that were regularly crossing back and forth in and out of the Punjab. And essentially... Um, you know his his father and his grandfather had already built up quite a significant patch of territory that was quite lucrative but this
1: territory remarkably is is so um heterodox it it's it's a sikh warrior caste ruling over uh, muslims hindus so no doubt, a whole bunch of um, Afghan and, and other people. Like it's, it's so. And do you think homogeneous villages nearby are the ones, or, or completely intermixed within communities?
0: You would have been very intermixed. You would have had villages that were very intermixed with lots of different communities living side by side. But then you also would have had quite nomadic groups passing through as well, especially in the more hilly regions. Um, so yes, absolutely, mixes of uh, different castes, different communities, people of different ethnic backgrounds. And essentially, they would have been ruling over a cluster of, of several of these types of villages and sort of drawing. I mean, it, it's interesting as well in that these kind of Sikh chiefs at this time were, were kind of being exhorted by their community to recruit only Sikhs into their warrior forces. But at the same time, they were where, where they needed to or where they're available, picking up, you know, Muslims or Afghans from the pool of military labor that was available. So it's, it's actually a very creative, very fluid time for these kinds of um, intercommunal relations.
1: And so, go on. So, OK, I interrupted you. So he, they're ruling over. It's very lucrative. They're making money. They're making money, what? Protection money, taxation in, in return for defending people against these uh, many, many enemies.
0: Absolutely. So the, the protection money known was known as Rocky, that the Sikh missile um, chiefs would collect almost like a form of tribute, basically, from the local populations that they were um, effectively now ruling over is, as a form of tax. But then they would also raid and loot and pillage, you know, neighbouring territories that were held by enemy groups or whatever, and, 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 and take wealth from them or or essentially capture those villages. So, as I said, it's a form of guerrilla warfare that they're engaging with at this stage. But slowly, slowly, it becomes, as their power expands, particularly the Sukhra Missal and others, they start establishing a more settled form of administration. Rudimentary still, but tapping into the old Mughal administration, at the very local level and and setting up their own mini 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 kingdoms that you know and then there's 12 of them of course spread out across across the, this region of northern india and punjab
1: and and so he would have just been a warrior from the cradle i mean it's just unbe- unbe- unbelievably able <laughs> on the battlefield
0: well this is it i mean the the, the story that his um later his persian chronicler sohna nasuri really uh, captures is how at the age of 10 the young Ranjit Singh. I mean, I think we have to add for a certain amount of romanticism, even at that time, around him. But at the age of 10, he's recorded as having gone into battle when his father, Maha Singh, falls sick. And how, you know, he's he's so brave and he's he doesn't think about, he doesn't let himself get worried that his dad might not survive. He just goes into it and does his duty. And and in the course of this battle, um, Maha Singh does die and uh, Ranjit Singh inherits the chiefdom of the Sukhachukya missile, And it's just th- this idea that, yes, he is the young-born warrior, and he's, he's ready at the age of 10 to take on that responsibility.
1: I mean, the mind, the mind boggles, uh, and somehow he, um, somehow he survives, and indeed thrives, and welds this empire of all these disparate groups.
0: Absolutely. And, well, I think the thing we have to bear in mind is that although all of these 12 groups have got their own territorial patches, as it were, and they've got this very heterogeneous society that they're um, ruling over... And it's meant to be a part of a united whole, this this idea of the Khalsa combined and and establishing its rulership, its Raj, over the Punjab. There was a lot of, you know, (laughs) competition amongst them all. And territory was constantly exchanging hands or, or being grabbed off one another as well. And so, I mean, Ranjit Singh's often credited with bringing order to this system. And by establishing his rule across the whole of the Punjab, by uniting it, but of course there's a lot of politics within that in and the, that how did he manage to establish his writ over everybody and of course it's incredible talent and grit and and foresight i think to bring to bring that level of control over the punjab but it we we have to ask questions i think of how did he how did he do that and and what tensions did it throw up in the process and i've tried to then look at it holistically within, within the book because he, he could be a bit of a bully boy at times, I think. But he was also as, you know, definitely this, this hero of Punjab. So it's a, it's a very nuanced <laughs> picture that I've tried to play with.
1: Hey, I'm Don Wildman. And on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, From stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California to shooting for the moon with Apollo, we've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best selling frame. That's A U R A frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Well, I'm sure. Yeah, I I can imagine you're treading on eggshells. Uh, The other side, meanwhile, the other side of India India and Bengal, you've got basically uh, extreme violence. Um, starvation and bribery working for the British over there as they're building their empire. I mean, are there any similarities between what's going on? Is it coincidental that these two, um, if you like, these two nascent empires are both building and and growing at the same time on either sides of the subcontinent?
0: I think so. And I mean, I think it goes back to what we were saying at the start of this interview, that, you know, that once the Mughal Imperium really starts to fall fall apart, um, there's so much opportunity up for grabs for such a diverse range of people and we see that across the subcontinent at this time. I mean, we have to remember that the Indian subcontinent is just vast and there's so many um, different regions, localities with their own cultures and, and 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 kind of melting pots of politics going on. So, um, you know, the, the East India Company is its own disruptive force. Of course. And the politics and the kind of economic style that it brings to bear is very different to what's going on in the Punjab and what Ranjit Singh is doing and the type of the type of I mean, we can call it colonialism that he is building, but it's of a very different nature to what the East India Company is, is is establishing.
1: And is... Are there any technological advantages? Why is he? I mean, why basically? Why is he able to weld this giant empire together? Is is there something around you know modern the, the firepower revolution, modern technology, or is he just an extremely able conqueror and ruler?
0: Well, I think there's there's more than one answer to that question. I mean, he he's definitely an early adopter of a lot of um, key European military technology that's that's coming into play. I mean, there's lots of stories that we know about how Ranjit Singh uh, sneaks into neighbouring camps on along the Sutlej River of, of, of British sepoys And he, you know, supposedly goes in disguise to go and check out the latest cannons and guns and things like that, that the British or the French or whoever else are, are trying to um, deploy in the field. Or, or he's got his intelligence spies that are going to these different courts or camps around Delhi to find out. Um, or, or are also consorting with the Marathas and that kind of stuff. And he's keeping a close eye on this. But he's not using... He does, to an extent, use that kind of weaponry within the Punjab for his campaigns. I mean, it's useful for him to capture really big forts like Gangrel or regions of the Kashmir and, and or to fight against the Afghans, for example, and to fully push the Afghans out of the region. But the other aspect of all of this is that he's just... And what I guess I've tried to focus on in the book more is, is this, this idea of his dynastic colonialism, the way he really goes and takes that to another level, the ambition of of taking over the Punjab and of really ramping up the networks that his that surround his warrior band, the Sukjaya missile, in order to get rid of the one amongst equals ideal and really kind of subordinate that to his to his family and his clan and so you know he goes on this almost this rampage of getting married across the Punjab he marries at least thirty women. And then he then arranges for his sons to have multiple marriages as well. And you might not think that that's actually a big deal, but really it's a massive change from what the previous cohort of Sikh chiefs had done. Most of them had only married a couple of women of similar backgrounds and they'd um, you know used those kind of alliances, family networks, in-laws, that kind of thing, to, to just keep control over their territories. But there's something in Ranjit Singh's psyche, it seems, that he just is so ambitious that he wants to push aside all of that older generation of allies and to build something new and build something that's much more uh, dramatically imperial.
1: Now, what is his attitude towards coming back to this idea of religion? He does, he, he doesn't, Sikhism is not something that is imposed on these peoples that he's conquering, is it?
0: No, it's not. I mean, he, it's interesting that at the courtly level, anyone that takes on a um, a chief, like a, a chief role as a, as a kind of political ambassador or as a general, I mean, he has all sorts of European generals joining his army from France and Italy and even the US. And he asks them all to wear, to grow beards and wear turbans and that, so to take on the outward appearance of a Sikh, but he doesn't forcibly encourage them or, or push them to convert or anything like that. Um, so in a way, he maintains the fluidity of Punjabi society that, that even the gurus had you know allowed for really um but at the same time and he very much you know um patronizes all sorts of different religious societies and, and institutions throughout the, the, the kingdom and of course he marries he marries Hindu and Muslim women just as he marries Sikh women so in in the fold of his dynasty and of his court it's actually very cosmopolitan um, but it is definitely infused with a Sikh religious identity. I mean, his government is known as the Sargari Khalsa, the government of the Khalsa. He doesn't mint coins in his own name or with his own imi- image. He he mints them with the names and the, the images of the gurus. So it's a, it's an interesting mix. He, he very much believes himself. And you can see he projects himself as being humble to the gurus and being humble to that Sikh inheritance that he's you know, taken on from his ancestors, and and to rule in that name, but at the same time, it's balanced with this idea of really, you know, hard power, um, and and in the and in that kind of Mughal imperial style.
1: It's so interesting, isn't it, that in the the the, the, the nationalism, the, the religious and ethnic nationalism that ripped across the world from the early nineteenth century onwards, you know, that eventually leads to the separation of India and Pakistan. The Sikh Empire doesn't kind of get a look in in that partition, I'm guessing, or, or does it? Because maybe, you know, he didn't create enough Sikhs for the kind of head-counting nationalists of the 19th and 20th centuries to think it was a, a separate entity. Like, did anyone did anyone ever suggest reviving the Sikh Empire when they were talking about the partition of India in uh, ni- in the 1940s?
0: Yeah, they did, um, or, or or at least they wanted credit for it having existed. Um, they, I mean, the thing is, is that there's so much. Um, internal debate, contestation um, amongst Sikhs in in the 1940s about what they want, you know, as a settlement from 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 independent India, and um, after with the end of the British Raj, and it's it's and, and in a way it reflects the the kind of messiness of the way that Sikhs spread throughout the Punjab from from throughout the 19th century from Ranjit Singh's time onwards. Um, they're an incredibly prosperous community, you know, throughout this period, considering that they're a minority. Um, but they are a minority, and, and the logic of population, majority-minority, that comes in from the late 19th century onwards is is um, is really the, the toxin at the heart of all of that debate. And I guess, I mean, it's interesting because even Maharaja Ranjit Singh himself, um, as I said, he kind of dabbled in a whole variety of religious practices himself. Although he held himself up to be a Sikh king, he would worship at Hindu temples, he would celebrate Islamic festivals um, alongside doing all of the Sikh, you know, kind of prayers and customs and all the rest of it. So him himself is a hybrid figure. And and amongst Sikh scholars of the 20th century and politicians, it's interesting because, I mean, it's not just him as a Sikh king, but it's also as him as a king, right? So you see the rise of democracy in that period as well. So some people want to celebrate the fact that a Sikh empire existed, to say, hey, we were great once. And you need to remember that and, and you know, award us a fair settlement accordingly. But at the same time, Ranjit Singh himself takes on this kind of more complicated image because he was an, a, a monarch, uh, a, a technically an autocrat and all this kind of thing. So we don't want to, we want democracy as well, right? That's also the claim. So it's, it's a murky one. It's a totally murky one. Um, but I guess in some ways it's marshaled as... A counterpose to the Mughal demand for Pakistan because they had a Mughal empire, right? So okay, well it's, it it becomes about a tit for tat of history and population politics, and you lose all sense of nuance then. I think which is which is a shame because that was what that cultural fluidity of that period was all about, really.
1: I've interviewed many people about the Partition. I always find the Sikh community's position in the violence around the Partition just so extraordinary because they're this. Sort of forgotten minority in this in this in the struggle that everyone thinks about between uh, Hindu and, and Muslim at that period, but anyway we, we won't get onto to that for the moment because we've got to talk about your your, your period um, Event just just finish us off eventually what happened to this empire, which is one of the largest and most important sort of political units on earth really in the early nineteenth century was conflict with the British inevitable eventually
0: well <laughs> it's a really good question i mean. It grows to be massive. It grows to take over the vast majority of the Punjab, not all of the Punjab. There's some Sikh princely states, Bajala and Abhajan, that manage to keep separate, but they kind of go under the umbrella shade of the company. Um, And Ranjit Singh then expands it throughout the north of the Punjab into nibbling away at bits of Afghanistan, nibbling away at bits of Tibet, you know, around Ladakh and it takes over Jammu and Kashmir, all of this kind of thing becomes an incredibly wealthy, incredibly powerful kingdom. And as you said, you know, really crucial kind of linchpin for the politics of South and Central Asia. It's the ultimate buffer zone in the Cold War between British India and and all the pa- main powers in Central Asia and Russia. Um, so it's it's at the epicenter of this new emerging global politics around South Asia. And I mean, I think Ranjit Singh really, he actually leverages his friendship with the East India Company from 1809 onwards to... It's like this ultimate competitive friendship right that they they are the <laughs> they are the two powers you know at the Olympics when there's two runners that are you know equally amazing and you don't know which one's gonna come out to on top. It's that sort of tension throughout the whole of his reign um but i I didn't think it was necessarily inevitable that the two would come to clash um but I think what happens is is that it's i think the the mistake that Ranjit Singh makes. Or, or perhaps maybe it wasn't a mistake. It was just, you know, a hope that it wouldn't it wouldn't go wrong. Is that he puts a lot of faith in the fact that he builds a strong relationship between the company and his successors. And in that case, the company really aren't as invested in his successors as they were in him. They see they actually see him as this kind of fairly useful Oriental despot type figure, but they really don't value his heirs and successors in the same way and and that's where you see the tension involved um, very quickly within 10 years of his death Um, all sorts of kind of fighting and um, politics start to come to the fore and you end up with an anglo-sikh war in uh, in 1845 and then again in 1849 and the kingdom being taken over and i think it's only when particularly when um the east india company's resident henry lawrence gets involved directly in the affairs of lahore as as a resident that you really see a problem um, because he's, he doesn't understand the political culture of the Punjab as much as he claims to. He's written books and articles galore and claims to be the expert, but he imposes this very idealised vision of, of royal culture on the Punjab that doesn't fit with with any of the dynamics that actually exist. And that's where I think it becomes a bit more inevitable that this kingdom would have fallen because its own natural, organic way of doing things is all messed up.
1: Priya, this is that is so fascinating stuff. What is your wonderful new book called?
0: Royals and Rebels: The Rise and Fall of the Sikh Empire.
1: Is it hard writing Sikh history?
0: I think it's um, it's hard as a Sikh.
1: Are you are you a Sikh?
0: I am a Sikh. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's hard because I don't know for for a number of reasons. Really, I mean, you you I've grown up with so many of these legends and so many of these stories and. And it's interesting because often it's a Sikh versus British or, you know, that kind of thing. And when you get into your own history, um, you know, and it, I guess it's the same for anybody, really. But when you those mythologies get busted and you start looking at the at the more gritty aspects of things, I think it's it can be difficult. But also, I think because Sikhs are a minority and there are not only a minority in India, but also around the world, um, we cling on to those mythologies more strongly than than a lot of others perhaps and that that can also mean that writing your history can be quite emotionally and politically fraught um so that's something that I've always struggled with but I've also once realized that you know it's a good struggle it's a healthy struggle because you, you'll get so much out of it and it's good to share that with people and and it, it, actually a more holistic richer deeper understanding will be more empowering in the long run than a romanticized half-baked one
1: definitely but I have had a lot of interactions with Sikhs both in India but also like friends dads growing up and they they, as you well know when they shake you by the hand they look into your soul and they tell you that Sikhs are the greatest martial race on planet earth who have never lost a battle and you just stand there and go Tote, yes got it sir absolutely got it I mean you don't want to mess with it you don't want to mess with a Sikh military history fan no <laughs> no
0: no, oh my I wouldn't either, to be honest with you. <laughs> I'm not a Sikh military historian myself. I'm a gender historian and a cultural historian. But yeah, no, it's always an interesting conversation.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it's an amazing, an amazing, amazing tradition. Um, okay, so, th- well, thank you very much. And very, thank you for coming back on the podcast and very good luck with this book.
0: Thank you so much, Dan. Take care.